Well, good morning. It's a real privilege to share with you this morning. I've just been so greatly fed by what Bruce has shared over the last couple of weeks. I just love how when he speaks, it just enlarges my capacity and my expectation for what is possible in God. So, yeah, I just hope that you guys have been encouraged as well. I was also encouraged, Rahawadi, by what you shared, because I, I want to speak this morning about righteousness and about God's righteousness. And I'm not going to be able to find Titus, so, and the exact verse, so I won't bother trying to do that. Um, myself and a bunch, a small bunch of university students from this congregation started a small group just after the midway point of this year. And what we've been doing is we've been looking at encounters that people had with Jesus from the Gospel of John. And I've just been so impacted by one of these encounters that we studied. And I've thought about it a lot and I've kept going back to it. And each time I have, I have just got more out of it and I've felt that you know, it speaks to me more and more. So it's my privilege to share some of what we have spoken about from John and what God has spoken to me about from John this morning. Can we begin by reading the account of Jesus' first miracle from John 2? On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no more wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom aside and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Have we got many people here this morning that had to run a lot of errands as kids? You know, we had to go to the dairy every now and again for milk. My mother was quite a conscientious shopper, so there wasn't a whole lot of stuff to do. But I don't ever remember going out for wine. <laughs> I, I did have a, did have a colleague who told us a story one Friday night after work that one of his errands that he used to run when he was young was that he did the smoke run for the family. His father had a really good relationship with the dairy owner, so his boy was allowed to pop up and get the smoke. So he'd get a pack for dad, a pack for mum, a pack for his two sisters, a pack for himself. And this was when he was eight. (laughs) So it's brilliant, but, well, it's not brilliant, but thankfully times have changed. But is this what we have here? Do we have Jesus' mother coming to Jesus and asking him to run an errand? Do we have her saying, you know, oh, we don't want some people to go thirsty here. People have run out. They'd just like another glass of wine. No, obviously, probably we don't. So, But in order to understand this story, we have to understand that a wedding was a far more significant event in the Jewish culture of Jesus' day than it is today. Who's been to an impressive fireworks display before? 
I didn't, I didn't go to the Upper Heart Fireworks this year, but I have been to a number of really impressive displays in my time. By far the biggest was an event called Booms Day that I went to on Labor Day when I was visiting a friend in Tennessee. Um, you know, just like everything in America, it was massive. There was a bridge that's perhaps half the size of the Auckland Harbour Bridge, and they just packed this thing with fireworks. And people come out in the very like early in the day to get the best spots, and there's lots of stalls and lots of you know, there's a great atmosphere. People are relaxed. And maybe that's an analogy that, sorry, maybe the analogy of a fireworks show is a way that we can relate to the significance of a wedding in Jesus' culture, in the Jewish culture of Jesus' day. Weddings were community-wide affairs. Everybody was invited. Like today, they were knitting together of two families. But in the traditional family culture of Jesus' day, this was far more significant than in our Western individualistic culture. Weddings ran over several days and often lasted up to a week. And they were the biggest event in a bride and a bridegroom's life because this was the day that they became adults in society. You know, weddings today are expensive, but at least we don't have to invite the whole town along. And though this must have been an enormous expense for the families, somehow the person in charge of estimating the wine requirement for the occasion managed to get it wrong this day. Maybe... Maybe we can understand, you know, if our family had promised to provide this amazing fireworks show and then maybe it finished halfway through. That's sort of perhaps the way we can understand what we're looking at here. So in the midst of this wedding celebration, Jesus' mother comes up to Jesus and states the problem. They have no more wine. The wine has run out and the reputation and honor of the bride and the bridegroom is on the line. What I really want to talk about this morning is the overall significance of this event, but I have got a couple of bonus points along the way. How many of us are like Jesus' mother and we don't go to Jesus until the wine has totally run out? How many of us do absolutely everything within our own strength before we're saying, oh, perhaps I should include God in this? Oswald Chambers put it like this. He said, we tend to use prayer as a last resort but God wants it to be our first line of defense. We pray when there's nothing else we can do, but God wants us to pray before we do anything at all. Isn't that gold? So Jesus' mother comes to Jesus trying to save a couple's reputation. Has anyone ever gone to like great lengths to protect their reputation before? I think that we'll go to almost any length to avoid being found out. When Anna and I had been going out for about eight months, I was invited to go away on the Pringle family summer holiday. And, you know, these holidays have just been such a blessing to me over the years. But on the first holiday, I committed one of the more grievous errors that a young man hoping to impress a lovely young woman can commit. i just finished university, and I hadn't yet found a graduate job. I'd been having interviews, and so I was painting houses to get by. You know, the work hadn't been 100% steady, but... It was pretty good. But, you know, it's Christmas time. There's presents to buy. Your wallet sort of comes out by itself at that time of the year. There's ice creams to be had. And things had gone a little bit unchecked, and I'd run out of money. Now, if I had have had the opportunity, I would have done nearly anything to avoid Anna finding out. I could have flung my bank cards into the waves and come up with some sort of story about how they'd got lost. Maybe I could have groveled to mum and dad, you know, at least then I'd only be embarrassed in their eyes. 
I'm not particularly musical, but perhaps I might have even gone to Fidianga and tried out some busking to see if I could scrape together some survival money. As it turned out, though, uh, none of those ideas, they were great ideas, but Anna was actually with me when my card declined. And so there's no getting out of it. But I bring this up because money has got to be the biggest place that we place our security and our reputation in in society today. You know, we work all day and then we email all evening wanting to make sure that we've got, you know, even more or, or even more than enough. People will delay paying off their mortgages. They accrue debt so that they can put up this facade of this great successful life that they have. Another easy modern target for where we place our reputation is our social media profiles and all of the various iterations that they come. You know, we take photos of all of our glamorous events. We write and we put our value into all of these sorts of things, um, document all of our best experience, experiences, and then we judge our value by the amount of response that we get. Where else do New Zealanders build their reputation? Another has certainly got to be their houses. You know, houses in New Zealand have even made it into the financial jargon, you know, investing in bricks and mortar. But how many of us are spending... Not only do we spend all of our time and our own money doing up our own house, we look at, if you look at the number of shows on television, we're also spending quite a bit of our time at home watching other people do up theirs. And a clean and a tidy and a warm house is great, but how many of us have wrapped up quite a bit of our security and our reputation into their house as well? And I think this sense of protecting our reputation, the sense of not wanting to be found out, actually goes deeper than, than we generally care to realize. You know, how many of us strive to make a name for ourselves? That's how we describe somebody who's sort of starting to become successful. We say, oh, she's really starting to make a name for herself, or he's really starting to make a name for himself. And God demands excellence in what we do. But how often do we consider ourselves either a success or a failure on the basis of our performance? How much energy do we spend making sure that people notice every little thing that we do? Maybe we could measure that one by counting the amount of time we spend resenting people when they don't notice. It's significant that Jesus chose to use the stone jars used for ceremonial washing in which to make the wine. These jars or jars for the same purpose are described in Mark 7, verse 3 and 4. In Mark it says, The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. You see, the Jews of Jesus' day used to come in from the marketplace and then they used to wash their hands in a special way in order to purify themselves. And you know, as well as trying to protect our reputation, I think that we also strive for money. We strive for an image. We strive to accumulate things. We strive to make a name for ourselves because we're trying to purify ourselves. We're trying to justify to ourselves that we have value. Jesus is saying by using these vessels, you know, washing your hands isn't going to do it. Our own efforts aren't going to do it. Man-made efforts aren't going to do it. But he's saying, I can do it, and I'll do it for you. David Riddell ministered to us earlier this year, and he told this story in one of the recordings that I got after that about this missionary who 
went over to the Northern Territory of Australia to serve. And he took his whole family, sold up everything that he had, and went into this remote place. And he built a house, he built a little school, and they started a little church. And everything seemed to be going really well. And that was until one day there was an amazing rainstorm. The rainstorm lasted for several days, and the river turned into a really a mighty flood, and it washed away everything that he had been working on. Not only that, the river, this flood washed away the entire town. It washed away everybody's house. It washed the asphalt off the road. It washed away all of the cables that were buried under the road. Everything was gone. Everything that they had worked for was gone. And he tells then of realizing that all he really is is who he is naked before God. Everything else is temporary. Or as Bruce said last week, things done in Jesus' name for Jesus' glory are the only things that will last beyond this lifetime. So in verse 4, Jesus answers his mother, and it seems a little bit harsh. Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. I haven't really talked to my mum like that. Maybe I have, for a while anyway. And I'm going to come back to that a bit later. But his mother is undeterred by his answer, and she says to the servants, do whatever he asks. So Jesus tells the servants to fill the jars, and then after they've been filled to the brim, he tells the servants to draw some out and take some to the master of the banquet. And this is bonus point number two. Observe how there's a break in Jesus' instructions. First, fill the jars, and then after they are filled to the brim, Jesus then says, take some out. We've got to remember here that we have got the luxury of knowing what happens later. We've got the luxury of knowing all of the miracles that Jesus did. At this time, the servants, you know, he hasn't even done a miracle yet. And the servants having to obey, first of all, fill up the jars. They're like, oh, all right, fill up the jars, sure. This really challenged me because rather than just obeying, how often do we want to know exactly how a conversation is going to go before we'll consider sharing our faith? Rather than just obeying, how often do we want to know the full detail of steps one through four before we just get started? Carrying on with the passage in John, and this is the key thing that has become cemented in my heart from this passage, is what happens when the servants draw out the wine and then take it to the master of the banquet. The servants take the wine that Jesus has created from water, to the master of the banquet. Then the master of the banquet calls aside the bridegroom and says, this is the best wine that I've ever tasted. The bridegroom receives the credit. And you see, I was trapped in this performance mindset for a long time. I knew that I was saved. I'd become a Christian. I knew, I recognized that Jesus had died for me. But I still felt guilty a lot of the time. I still felt like I wasn't good enough. In Romans 5, Paul is talking about who Jesus is, and he's saying about, talking about how faith is, salvation is through faith in Christ alone. And in verse 12, it says, Just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, death came to all men because all sinned. So sin came into the world through one man, Adam. And I could totally relate to that because I knew all of the terrible things that I'd done. I knew all of the rubbish that I'd thought. But in verse 17, Paul says, For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace 
and the gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying that we all sin because Adam sinned. But in the same way, we are all righteous because Jesus was righteous. And the key phrase I'm trying to communicate here is the gift of righteousness. You see, I'd accepted that Jesus died for me and that because he died in my place, he died the death that I should have died. He died as me. But I hadn't understood in my heart that Jesus' righteousness was mine as well. When we put our faith in God, we're gifted Jesus' perfect obedience, his perfect performance, his perfect humility. And again, if we're gifted his righteousness, then he didn't only live perfectly for me, he lived perfectly as me. Receiving his righteousness means that he has lived through every situation. He's faced every situation that I have faced. And he has acted perfectly on every occasion. He's acted perfectly in all of the places that I have failed. I hope that's real to you, because that was such a transforming truth for me. And it was the perfect antidote to condemnation and failure. I was finally able to break away from relying on the amount of righteousness I felt And I was able to realize that my performance has nothing to do with it. And Jesus' first miracle illustrates this so well. Jesus makes the wine and the servant brings it to the master of the banquet. So Jesus lives the perfect life and he comes and presents that to the master of the banquet, God. And then God calls us aside. He calls the bridegroom aside and he looks at us and he says, that's brilliant. Like you've lived perfectly. You have done, he gives us the credit. And you know, this is something that is absolutely unique about Christianity among the religions of the world. The founder of every other religion will either say, ultimately, everything is God. Or they'll say, I have found the way to God, or God has revealed the way to himself to me. Like, this is how to live. Jesus came and he said, I am God, and I have come to make the way for you to be with me. I'd like to finish by returning to the conversation that Jesus had with his mother. The phrase, my hour has not yet come, is something that we see in the book of John a number of times. John 7.30 says, At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. John 8.20 says, He spoke these words while teaching in the temple area near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him, because his hour had not yet come. In John 13, 1, Jesus is preparing to eat the Passover with his disciples. And it is here that the Gospel of John says that his hour has finally come. At Cana, we are at what could be described as the first supper. And we see words used to describe the last supper. And I think this is at the core of why Jesus answers his mother the way that he does. Can we all do our best to imagine ourselves in this story for a moment? I hope that everybody's been to a lovely wedding before. You know, I imagine sitting at a beautiful table, white tablecloth, ornamentally laid out. You know, over there there's people dancing. There's Everybody's in high spirits. There's joy, you know. Everybody's had a lovely meal. They're feeling relaxed. And as we look all around the room, we look over at the table. We don't see the rules sitting there at the table. We don't see a list of can-dos and can't-dos there sitting at the table. We don't see a set of scales ready to measure our good deeds against our bad deeds over there sitting at the table. We see a person. 
And as we look, we see Jesus' mother come up to him. And she tells him about a crisis. And he sits there in the midst of this joyful frivolity, in the midst of the celebration of a wedding. And he's gone serious. We look over and he's thinking hard. You know, Jesus knows that he can help in this situation. He's the son of God. But he also knows that by helping, but he also knows that the start of his earthly ministry is directly connected to the end of his earthly ministry. He knows that by helping, that's going to result in a brutal death. It's going to result in deep pain. It's going to result in him suffering the wrath of sin and being separated from his father. You know, we don't know how long he thought about it. But he goes along and he acts and he tells the servant, gives the instructions to the servants. And he creates wine and he saves this couple's reputation. And because he did, because he did, when we are sitting at the difficult tables of our life, when we are sitting at the table of disappointment, the table of sickness, the table of poor choices, we can sit there and we don't have to look forward to more of that. We don't have to look forward to pain like Jesus did. We can look forward to joy. We can look forward to a time when suffering has ended. And we can look forward to the best wine that we've ever tasted. The book Encounters with Jesus puts it like this. Jesus sat amidst the joy of the wedding feast, sipping the coming sorrow, so that today you and I who believe in him can sit amidst all this world's sorrow and sip the coming joy. Would you stand with me while I pray to finish, please?